Blomcast. Turning Points in History. Wendepunkte in der Geschichte. Welcome to the Blomcast, the podcast in which I, Philip Blom, look at turning points in history and what they may or may not tell us for, taught for today. And in the previous episode, I talked about the curious idea that human beings can conquer the entire earth, can dominate the earth, can subdue nature. And the huge effect that has had on history, the anormality of this idea compared to other mythologies, other ways of seeing the world, um, but also the historical effect. But of course, with this historical effect, we come to one question that we have to answer, because this idea was born in West Asia, was traveled to Europe through the Bible and through Christianization, and from Europe it spread over the entire world due to colonialization and imperialism and Christian missionaries. But there's one question here that we have to answer if we want to go further, which is really, why Europe? We are talking here about one of the greatest turning points in human history, the conquest of faraway continents, the wiping out of the populations there, the establishing of a vast colonial empire that really did change the course of human history and left a legacy with which people are still battling today. And that is on top of things like the Colombian transfer, so the swapping of living organisms between Europe and the Americas, and then, of course, also throughout the world. So, so much hinges on this question. Why was it Europe that could extend and project its power so far? Because, say you'd been a Martian or some kind of traveler who would have looked at the civilizations of the Earth around, well, say, as late as 1450, and would have wanted to answer the question, which of these civilizations is in the best position to assume a position of great power? Which of these civilizations will make the race? Well, You would have certainly started in China. That was the biggest state, the biggest realm, the biggest economy at the time. It had a fabulous and ancient culture. It had powerful armies. It had a vast navy. Um, there was power to project, and indeed China did project that power. But it did not end up taking over the world. Then there were the empires of South Asia and Southeast Asia, which were perhaps more locally limited, although also technologically very far advanced. Then, of course, there was the vast empires of India and all the civilizations that were there. And again, before the Brits arrived and changed that, India was the second largest economy in the world. So these were the real powerhouses. And then you go to the Americas and you find that there are great cultures there that certainly had technology to project, but they did not 
do that. They, they were not great seafarers. They were mostly concentrated on the inland. But, of course, I forget one of the greatest contenders um, back on the old continent, namely the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire that stretches from the Mediterranean far, far to the east, touching India. And this enormous empire with great power, with great sophistication, with vast armies, again with a great navy, there would be another contender for taking over the world. And indeed, the Ottoman Empire is also a very expansionist empire. It is actively seeking to acquire new territories. Um, and so why not the Ottomans? Why, why this? Well, you know, if you're as the traveler, you come from imperial Beijing and you saw the great um, cities of the Mughal Empire in India and you saw splendid cities in Africa. You saw the enormous cities of the Aztecs and the Incas and the Olmecs and other civilizations in the Americas. And then you came to Europe and it was... Well, it was cold, it was disorganized, it was poor, it was really a heap of squabbling little states. Um, it was very much a post-Roman position where the Roman Empire had left a fragmented legacy of little realms that were at each other's throats. Um, not a single one of them was powerful enough to project global power. And they certainly didn't speak with one voice and didn't go in one direction. The idea of being a European wasn't born yet. So, you know, Europe, this really dirty back backwater of history, that certainly wasn't a strong candidate. Also, if you look at navigation, which was so important, again, the Europeans, they hugged the coast in their little wooden ships and they did trade, but it was coastal trade that eventually crept down the western coast of Africa, but it was still quite limited, but it was lively, of course, in the Mediterranean. But if you looked at the greatest seafarers, again, China was great. Indian um, sailors were fantastic at negotiating that whole, the whole vast Indian Ocean and building an enormous trade network. And then there were cultures like the Maori and the Pacific cu cultures who were phenomenal seafarers and who braved journeys of thousands of kilometers in open canoes and could obviously navigate and go back and forth. So again, here Europe wouldn't have been an obvious candidate for world domination. So, why Europe? How could it be that this backwater became a world power within 200 years or so, certainly within 300 years? Um, the great swathes of the globe had been carved up by European powers and made their dominion. Well, let us look at the empires, let us look at the contenders, and I cannot pretend that we will find the reason why that happened. Also, alternative history is always a tricky thing to do, but it's still an interesting thought experiment. And let us first look at China and the Ottoman Empire. And here, one thing that becomes very clear, very strongly, uh, very quickly clear. First of all, the Ottoman Empire has one 
vast drawback. It doesn't have access to the open ocean. It only has so an Aden at the tip of the Arabian Peninsula, but otherwise um, it can only access the Mediterranean. And of course, with, with the Mediterranean, the access to the ocean will always, always be controlled by the power that controls Gibraltar. And therefore, it was not possible for the Ottoman fleet really to extend its vast domination further um, into the world than the Mediterranean. But in the Mediterranean, they were very, very um, efficient and very dominant. So they tried to expand their, um, their realm on the land route, which was a lot more difficult, which also proved a lot more costly. Um, and they came up against European armies that were well-trained because there was a lot of war in Europe. And so they were limited going to Europe. They did try... Um, um, recording this in Vienna, a city that was um, besieged by the Ottomans the last time in 1683, so it's not that long ago. Um, but the Ottomans also had one other thing that drew them back, and that united them with the Chinese. The Ottomans and the Chinese were the largest regional powers that were there, and they didn't really have any serious military rivals um, in, on their own territory. They had rivals if they wanted to expand, but not on their own territory. And the only rivals they really had to contend with were the armies from the steppes that came regularly and raided um, provinces on the borders and from which the armies had to protect themselves. These steppe armies, these armies of uh, the Mongols, etc., they came on horseback and they were fantastic archers. And that also meant that for both the Ottoman and the Chinese army, it wasn't very interesting, interesting to develop firearms further because a musketeer um, at that time, the people who used the very early muskets, um, you, could, you could release one shot and then you had to reload, which was quite laborious. And so people were vulnerable for quite a long time and had to be protected. Um, and the riders, on the other hand, they came in one quick wave and they let off a, a cloud of arrows and they could shoot several arrows per minute. And so... Of course, the development of firearms wasn't very interesting, but on the other hand, the Ottoman and Chinese armies were sufficiently powerful to hold off these attacks so that they also didn't have very much incentive to develop their technologies further. And, of course, big empires had another drawback, which is that a lot of their military power was always bound up within their own territories because there wouldn't only be attacks from the borders, which were often porous and not very clear, but there were also rebellions in the provinces and different factions. And, of course, the larger, the more territory you have, the, la the longer communication took, the longer it took to move armies or even goods throughout the empire. So the empire was a sort of natural, had a sort of natural limit with it, with the length of the ways of communication, which was part of the reason also that the Roman Empire was split in two. So in fact, being a large empire wasn't very good for projecting power. In the 
case of the American great cultures, there was also another drawback, which is really another accident of history. And that is that Middle America had different kinds of grain, which were sometimes less productive than European grains, but also um, Mesoamerican cultures didn't have beasts of burden. They didn't have horses and they didn't have cows and um, oxen to till the fields. It all had to be done by human labors because llamas and alpacas are simply not made for that kind of um, use. And so work was a, more, a lot more laborious for those cultures because they had to use more human muscle power for everything. And they, if they wanted to transport something, they basically had to transport it. Um, it had to be transported by people. So these little factors make a lot of cumulative difference when it comes to how much power a culture can project and how far it can project it. And here we come to a curious realization, which is that Europe, that dirty backwater that was very clearly distinguished between a rich and relatively thriving Mediterranean region where the European kingdoms and the Ottomans and um, other cultures met and where trade routes such as the Silk Route um, came into Europe and where the cultural activity was very dense, where the Renaissance was being born and forged at that time, and Northern Europe that was um, a lot more behind in terms of cultural and also economic development was only just beginning to join that movement. But we begin to understand that actually Europe's weakness became a source of its power because these were highly fragmented states and they were always in a state of war with one another. They were always also in a race for better engineering for siege works, but also better engineering for manufacturing. Um, they were always in the race for better ship designs and money. And therefore, these were the beginnings of intensifying trade, of a rivalry that also India knew, but for different reasons that panned out differently. But um, this rivalry, intense rivalry between small states, was one factor that certainly spurned the technological development, um, also the social development of these places, always punctuated though by wars that threw back Europe by a generation or so. I mean, 200 years later, after our fictitious journey in 1450, 200 warring years later, we will have the 30 years war in which 12 million people, which was something for some regions of Europe, up to half of the population living there was wiped out. So this warring didn't only create lovely new technologies, it also brought death and destruction and sometimes threw Europe back by generations. But another accident is that Europe has a very long coastline and many of these small states have access to the open sea. And that was important, of course, for England, for Spain, for Portugal, for France, etc. And countries that didn't have such an easy access, such as, for instance, Germany made this um, 
a big issue in their foreign policy later. So access to the sea was also easy for these countries. And then there is indeed the power of accidents. When the Europeans met the great cultures of Mesoamerica, well, there was just a shipload of them. There weren't very many. They weren't very powerful. There were a really ragtag band of knights and traders and bandits and seamen who arrived and who were armed, but who could have easily been driven back into the sea. But the welcome was mostly rather more friendly, but also the Europeans brought with them a weapon that they didn't even know they brought. They brought viruses and they wiped out the populations without firing a single shot. So here's one accident that allowed Europeans easily to dominate American cultures because they brought things like the pox and the populations there which had never been exposed to these pathogens could not resist that. The present was returned, by the way, because um, European sailors then brought back the syphilis that was become, would become such a scourge of Europe. But um, certainly here was one historical accident. Another historical accident is really, is really fascinating and beguiling. And um, I just have to read this to you. I will have to translate it prima vista. I haven't yet translated it into, into English. But it is a letter written by an Italian trader in 1499. And he is in an Indian harbor. And here in India... He is puzzled because there are accounts. It is now 80 years ago that some people of white Christians came to Calcutta. They wore their hair long, like the Germans, but they had no beards apart from around their mouths, just like they have in Constantinople among the cavaliers and the courtiers. And... They landed and they were heavily armed. Um, well, I will, I will make this short. It's a long letter. But he is speculating who these sailors might have been who were after spices. And he said they had, their ships had four masts like those in Spain. But if they were Germans, then I think we would have known about it. But perhaps there were Russians who have a harbor here. Um, but perhaps when another captain came, we will hear who that was who came here such a long time ago. <clears throat> and these traders who had come there 80 years earlier had simply vanished. And the Italian trader is now wondering who they might have been, which European nation they might have belonged to. Well, the interesting thing is they didn't belong to any European nation. What this Italian trader was describing there was hearing through stories told, still told in the harbor and the city of Calcutta 80 years later, was the appearance of the Ming treasure fleet, a vast fleet of the Chinese Empire with hundreds of ships, ships that were sometimes 60 meters long, 
carrying an army of 28,000 men and traders and priests and acrobats and musicians and horses and other animals and um, a vast pomp, but an immensely impressive um, event when this great fleet turned up. As indeed it did, because the Chinese did build a kind of colonial empire in the 15th century and throughout the Indian Ocean up to the coast of East Africa. And everywhere they established trading points. Um, and they didn't try to conquer the surrounding countryside. They also didn't try to subdue the population or to convert them to their faith. But they did demand tribute. And the treasure fleet would return every now and then, and then they would demand tribute to be given. And this tribute was, would then be duly paid, and any local monarch who thought, thought it would not be a good idea to pay that would soon learn that it was at his peril that he didn't do that because they were very hard in their pen, uh, punitive expeditions if their will was not uh, followed. Now, if the first Portuguese ships that had made the way around Africa and come to Asia had come into a world of existing Chinese trading networks, there would have been no European colonization of Asia and perhaps of Eastern Africa. But the fact was that just before that, the whole enterprise of the Ming treasure fleets had simply collapsed. And it had collapsed because the great admiral of the treasure fleet whose personal project this was and who had convinced the successful, successive emperors to give him his support for that. Well, he was a eunuch and he was part of the eunuch faction at court. And in a factional fight between different political factions, the eunuchs lost out and therefore their projects lost out. And the emperor decided to freeze the treasure fleets, and then indeed it was decided that all the ships had to be burnt, and then there were even laws passed to say that it was a crime to have a ship with many masts, and it was a crime to punishable by, by heavy punishments to um, sail the open seas, so China retreated into itself. We know very little about the end of this affair of the treasure fleet for the simple reason that it was a very effective cover-up job even then and thousands of documents were seized and burned that related to this um, palace revolution essentially and therefore there's quite a lot there's not there's there are a lot of open questions about this but the fact is the Ming treasure fleet that already had a sort of colonial empire had dismantled this empire just before the Europeans arrived. So what was Europe's secret for world domination? Was it a superior idea? Was it a superior culture? Was it a superior technology? The latter, yes, perhaps. There were superior technologies because 
the warring European states had made it more interesting to develop, especially the, uh, the technologies of war, much more efficiently. And so they were very good at waging war. But that would not have been enough. And the Europeans didn't bring any ideas that wouldn't have been known somewhere else already, that wouldn't have been known since antiquity. So it was certainly not. Um, some kind of superior idea. Though perhaps the idea that it is part of the religion, part of the very identity of the people, that they must subjugate their earth, that they must missionize, that might have given the Europeans an energy and a drive that other cultures didn't feel towards um, subjugating other peoples and doing more than demanding tribute from, from them. But in the end, it seems that it was largely a matter of chance. There was the fact that in other cultures there weren't the right resources to develop their reach further. They hadn't had the need to develop seafaring to a great to, to take to the seas to a great extent. They were subject to viruses that Europeans brought that were far more effective than their ideas. They had already retreated from a position of great power and left the field to the Europeans. That seems to have been much more important for the system that then became the greatest power in the world, the colonial empires of the European nations with all that is that that entailed that that entailed in bringing also the christian faith to countries around the world not only in its religious form but also in its secularized forms such as socialism such as perhaps also liberalism um, all these creeds that come out of the tradition of the christian faith as well or certainly out of european traditions but in the end, what became Europe's strength also became Europe's undoing because the warring European states that had developed technologies that nobody else had continued to do just that up into the 19th century and in the 20th century. That became an almost universal slaughter in Europe and the warring states once again dominated history. So Europe's rise and ascendancy throughout history may have begun with a string of accidents, but it has also come to an end with a string of accidents and perhaps also because of the very factors that had made Europe strong before. I'd be interested to know what you think about this. I'd be interested to know how you react to this idea of European preponderance and its end that we are living through now. So um, like this episode if you enjoy it. Subscribe to this podcast. Tell your friends about it. Tell lots of people about it. I'm curious to hear your views. I'm curious to be in dialogue with as many people as possible. And for now, I thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.